Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When people say China is an indispensable partner for climate change, I say, well, they're indispensable, all right, but are they really a partner? When they reacted to the... Taiwan Wizard of Nancy Pelosi, they announced that they would cease, for the time being, cooperating with the United States on climate change. It's the first case that we know that a country tries to use climate change policy as a tool for political coercion. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Reinhard Butikoffer, a leading voice on Europe's national security stance and chair of the European Parliament's China delegation, joins Professor Rory Metcalf to discuss how Europe, Germany and Australia are approaching the China challenge. He outlines how European and German views of China are shifting and lessons for the Indo-Pacific from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Butikoffer also describes the vital role green voices have played in the shaping of German and European strategic policy. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Nanbury people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast, and it's a real pleasure in this episode to welcome a special guest visiting Australia from Germany. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Reinhard Butikofer to the studio here at the National Security College. Reinhard, welcome to Australia. Thanks for having me, Rory. So look, uh, yours is a fascinating story, a fascinating political journey. And I know we're going to be speaking in a moment, uh, and for most of this podcast, really about what I would call the China challenge that both uh, Germany and Australia face uh, in, in perhaps perhaps overlapping ways. Your political career is very much as a, uh, a very uh, prominent and influential figure in the Greens Party in Germany and uh, in European politics from uh, a Greens perspective. But what is the personal story, the personal journey that takes you from uh, being a, uh, a green activist, a green uh, politician, a green political figure, to a strong voice on national security and on China in particular? Well, my political story starts way before I joined the Greens in 1984 uh, basically, it started when I spent a year in high school in Wisconsin uh, in uh, 1969 and 1970 at the height of the controversy over the Vietnam War. That created for me a new world outlook in a way. Mm. Uh, and uh, later on, after graduating from high school in Germany, I uh, went to Heidelberg University, which was at the time a hotspot of the German student movement, and I 
joined the student movement, became a student radical, a Maoist student radical. A Maoist student radical, right. Yeah. So it's a long journey. <laughs> well, well, my interest in China did not originate with Maoism. It originated with the Chinese language. I stumbled across a penguin book, Teach Yourself Chinese, in a London bookshop. And I was so fascinated uh, that I decided I had to learn that language. So when I went to Heidelberg University, I um, decided I would study philosophy and history and ancient history and Sinology. I didn't get far, but I stuck to being interested in China. And um, later on, um, when um, I... Um, joined the Greens first on a local level, being elected to the city council in Heidelberg, later to the state parliament, I continued working on China. And in the European parliament since 2009, China has indeed been one of the focuses on my work. So a student radical, initially radicalized in the Vietnam War era, uh, a Maoist student activist in Germany in the 1970s, uh, an interest, a deep interest in, in, in China, but clearly uh, a consistent thread uh, about green and progressive politics as well. Uh, these days, this is beginning to look like a, a consistent platform, but there would have been a time where uh, I guess certainly there would be voices in the uh, the Greens and, and on the left in Germany who would have thought that it was highly inconsistent, if you like, to be um, concerned about China as, a, uh, or as an authoritarian actor in the international system and yet uh, a champion of progressive politics. So, so how have you, how have you uh, reconciled those views or, or do you see them as consistent? Well, I would say that indeed my party um, has pursued probably a trajectory that is a bit different from some other green parties around Europe. Uh, and uh, for us, of course, the fact that we joined in government in a coalition with mm. the Social Democrats back in 1998 uh, until 2005 and, and had to deal with the challenges of the Kosovo War and the uh, war in Afghanistan uh, that influenced our national security thinking. Mm. The German Greens Party had never been a pacifist party, but we used to have a lot of pacifists. And we were, um, you could call it advocating nuclear pacifism, because if the consequence of a nuclear war would be global winter, there's no point in even thinking about war. But we had to learn, and everybody had to learn, that war was coming back to Europe in, in uh, Yugoslavia. And uh, I was one of the early voices in my party in 1993 to advocate military intervention to prevent genocide. And that was a debate that we had in the party for over eight years, whether it would be legitimate to... and. It was finally decided in favor of saying, if there is a risk of genocide, as we thought was the case in, uh, in, in the policy that was pursued by Milosevic at the time, then it is justified to say, we have an obligation to step in. And that has been 
the basis of a very strong anti-authoritarian orientation. Human rights have always played mm. a major role in our foreign policy thinking. And that's why when you look back to the electoral campaign, federal electoral campaign last year, the Greens were the voices that were more critical of Russia and China in all mm. the public debates than any of the other parties. So look, I think it is a really a really informative and illuminating and, and, and pretty striking story that, that the German Greens uh, have such now, uh, such a serious set of policies on national security, on uh, national interests and values and foreign policy, human rights, uh, countering authoritarianism and so on. In terms of China and going back a little to your own uh, interest uh, in the China challenge, uh at what point did your views on China change? Uh, did China change or did your perspective change? China has changed several times and my views about China have also changed. When Deng Xiaoping began the phase of reform and opening up in 79, that was a momentous change for China. And um, I would say then that was this severe event of the um, Tiananmen Massacre. Shortly after the Tiananmen Massacre, the German Chancellor at the time, Gerd Schröder, wanted to strike down the arms embargo that we had imposed against China. And it was the German Greens who opposed him on that count. So the, mm -hmm. formally the arms embargo is still in place. And um, then again, I would say the, the second very fundamental change came about with the um, accession to the throne of uh, party emperor by Xi Jinping. Um, I would say in retrospect, certainly, uh, that that constituted a turning point from authoritarianism mm. with some small gray zones for private liberties where people could organize, where women could organize to um, protest um, unwanted sexual harassment, uh, where uh, environmentalists could organize somewhat to oppose um, poisoning the, the groundwater and the soils of China towards a totalitarian system where civic activity per se, hmm. civic engagement per se is not accepted. There's and also a, um, a abandonment of a certain division of power between the party leaders. Uh, maybe the system that prevailed under Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao could be described as a communist aristocracy. And that has been turned into a party empire. And those transformations, I think, have not only had a major effect in China's domestic policies, but also in China's attitude vis-a-vis -vis 
international partners. I recall still meeting Dai Bingwa at some mm. point and hearing him uh, explain Deng Xiaoping's policies with regard to foreign uh, foreign relations. Um, hide your strength, bide your time. Mm. And I heard the the young lads from the foreign ministry respectfully and strongly contradicting the old man. Now is a new age. And the time for the Westphalian order is now over. And increasingly, it has become, I think, more than obvious that China today, Xi Jinping's China, is pursuing a revisionist agenda in cooperation with uh, Putin's Russia that wants to overturn a rules-based, multilateralist global order and turn it into a China-centric, authoritarian, big-power policy kind of arena. And as NATO just recently said in the new Madrid strategy, Mm. that poses risks to our interests, to our values, and to our democratic way of life. Reinhard, it's it's great that you're in Australia to discuss these issues because, of course, uh, Australia's had its own reality check with Chinese uh, power and ambition and authoritarianism or even, as you say, uh, totalitarianism in, in, in recent years. Let's turn, though, back to Europe for a moment, and I would like to come back to China, Australia, and the Indo-Pacific a bit later in the conversation. I want to focus uh, a little more squarely on uh, on Germany uh, and on European security policy uh, to some extent as well. What's the shift been like in Germany in recent years in thinking about uh, security risk or strategic risk uh, regarding Russia and China in particular? Ten years ago, roughly two-thirds of Germans had a positive view of China. Today, it's the inverse. And um, when you try to, to analyze how that, came, how that turnaround came about, I think uh, Xinjiang played a major role. The uh, atrocities that uh, the Communist Party is committing there, in particular against the Uyghurs. Hong Kong played a role. The blatant Hmm. willingness to rip up an internationally binding treaty and to ignore Hong Kong's basic law. But also there has been an economic dimension to the turnaround. And it's interesting to know... Well, we assume that Germany is economically dependent on China, so how can that be? Well, the German Federation of Industry, BDI, the the strongest business lobby that we have in the country, published a uh, very critical China strategy in the beginning of uh, 2019. And that was, in a way, the opening salvo for a new conversation. And to this day, I would say, with the exception of a couple of CEOs of Mm. multinational corporations like Volkswagen Mm. that have put way too many eggs into that one Chinese basket and 
have become very dependent on China, there is now a, criti a prevailing critical mood in the German business community. And the reason for that, at least to some degree, is the following. For many years, we did have indeed a win-win economic arrangement between Germany and China. We provided them with the luxury cars and the high-tech products that they craved, and they flooded our market with cheap commodities. There was almost no competition. For other European countries, the story was different. For Germany, that was very convenient. Mm. But as China started moving up through the value chain, they started becoming a competitor. They wanted to be technology leaders themselves, and you can't criticize them for it. But if your competitor hmm. does not stick by the rules, does not play by WTO law, it's more relevant than if there's no competition. You, you can't forget about it. So increasingly, the fact that China has flouted WTO rules since they joined WTO, and this has impacted our business increasingly as they became real industrial players, that has turned around uh, quite a, a few uh, thinkers, uh, particularly with industrial associations. And today you have a situation where the majority of the business community, the human rights community, and the national security community are pretty much aligned on China. That was held back by the previous government. The chancellor personally, when she came into office, was very courageous in her China policy. She was an outspoken person when others would not say a word publicly about human rights. But in her latter years, she became, um, yeah, she became obviously convinced that there was no way but playing along with China. So Germany became an outlier mm. in the European arena. When all of Europe spoke about systemic rivalry between China and Europe, she wouldn't utter the word a single time. That has changed now with the new government. So, so in a sense, Germany's catching up with um, the, the reality check that some other countries have had on China. But of course, Germany is uh, a very substantial and influential country. Uh, so is there a scope for Germany now to play, uh, I guess, a more leading role in Europe in a critical China policy? Or is this still really in the balance? I mean, what, what happens now? You talk about a prevailing mood of criticism of China and Germany, but we're not necessarily seeing that translate yet into policy settings. So how could this evolve? Well, the time has been too short for the new government to come up with its promised China strategy yet. Uh, that will probably happen somewhere during the first half of next year. Mm -hmm. Uh, the uh, government is working on it, and they're listening to all kinds of voices, and this is being done under the penholdership of the foreign ministry. And the foreign minister, who is a Green, has been very explicit in 
the guidelines of that work, namely the agreement that we have struck between the three coalition partners in uh, the founding document of the coalition, which is very clear in the language and signals a fundamental turnaround from the previous government. So, for instance, for the first time, we do mention Taiwan explicitly in a government uh, document like that and uh, state that we insist on a policy that opposes unilateral changes across the Taiwan Strait and, in particular, the use or threat of force, and that we want Taiwan to play a meaningful role in international organizations. Uh, stuff like that. We also raise human rights issues. We mention the Uyghurs and so on. So that's the basis mm. for the development. Of course, not all the coalition partners sing completely from the same hymn sheet. And uh, we are probably stronger drivers. The Greens are. The Greens yeah. for a change and also the, the Free Democrats. And some of the socialists are a bit more reluctant to go in that direction. So mm. the discussion the discussion is on. At the same time, um, our role in Europe is also made easier by the fact that some divisive strategies that China has been pursuing over the years are clearly failing. You could think of the originally 16, then 17 plus one format where China would meet with uh, 16 or 17 Eastern and Southeast Eastern um, European countries to try driving a wedge between countries that were formerly in the Soviet bloc and the rest of Europe, that has failed utterly. Uh, first, it was Lithuania that left just recently, mm -hmm. Estonia and Latvia followed suit. So it has shrunk to a 14 plus one and uh, I don't think there's much prospect there. And when you look at the economic dimension, it's interesting to note that beginning in 2016, um, Europe has made quite some steps forward with regard to filling some gaps in WTO law through unilateral trade defense instruments. We started with a new anti-dumping mechanism, then we introduced an investment screening, then we um, finally, after Germany had blocked that for 10 years, came around to do an international procurement instrument, a foreign subsidies instrument, because it's just unbearable that where European companies are prevented by European law to be subsidized by the governments, Chinese competitors uh, win uh, the tenders because they're subsidized to the hilt. And um, then we have the anti-coercion instrument. That, so there mm. is a good measure of not just talking about new directions, but also putting them in place. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. 
I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we could go in a couple of directions here. We could talk about how uh, those developments affect overall European policy on China and whether, in fact, um, it's realistic for China to be concerned about uh, Europe as that that third pole of global power, China, the United States and Europe, uh, which if China comprehensively loses, uh, it, it, it kind of affects the global balance in ways that are deeply de- detrimental to China's interests. We, we could perhaps talk about that for a moment and then I would like to move on to, to Russia. As I see the picture... China has been trying very hard to drive a strong wedge between the transatlantic partners, the United States and Europe. And it's still their practice that whenever one of us voices a criticism, they accuse us of taking an American view. So they try to tell us that the European view should be that we don't criticize China. And, uh, for instance, when when um, some politicians, some leaders, talked a lot about European strategic autonomy, and when that was partly understood as a movement that, that might sort of lead us a bit to the side from the centrality of the transatlantic relationship, we had no bigger fans of strategic autonomy (laughs) than Wang Yi, who kept telling us that this is the way to go. In, In fact, that Chinese approach has suffered a, a major defeat when the comprehensive agreement on investment that had been negotiated for many years Mm -hmm. and finalized by the end of the German rotating presidency, end of 2020, under the personal supervision of Chancellor Merkel, when that was shelved by the European Parliament because China had imposed sanctions against members of the European Parliament and against the Human Rights Subcommittee hmm. of the European Parliament. I, I think including you, right? Was it? Including myself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had the, the special honor of being named number one of China's enemies in the global times. Um, but the Parliament has shown admirable strength because all the major democratic groups from the conservatives Christian Democrats, the Social Democrats, the Liberals, and the Greens have stuck together. So on Hong Kong, on Taiwan, 
on the Uyghurs, on human rights, on what, what South China Sea, what have you, mm. we have a solid majority of about 85 to 90 percent of the European Parliament that shapes a common view. And this is, even though formally the European Parliament doesn't have much of a say on foreign policy, mm. this is has been influential also in helping shape uh, the European conversation. And I think today all of us understand well that it behooves us to cooperate strongly with the United States and other like-minded partners. So in our coalition agreement in Berlin, we signaled explicitly that we want to do China policy together with uh, our partners in Washington. And we also explicitly stated that we want to pursue a policy of strategic solidarity with other democracies vis-a-vis authoritarian regimes. Now, bringing the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the the uh, the, the, the brutality, the aggression of, uh, of Putin's uh, catastrophic blunder, in my view, this year, bringing the Russian invasion of Ukraine into the conversation and looking at how German perceptions on China have shifted, how European perceptions on China have shifted, is there a connection and what is it to uh, the European response to Russia's aggression? I believe that the most decisive document in this context is what Josep Borrell, the uh, high representative and vice president of the European Commission, called a revisionist charter agreed to by Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin uh, on the sidelines of the uh, Beijing Winter Olympics beginning of February, where uh, they struck a uh, alliance of convenience and of shared uh, antagonism against the U.S. and Europe and other like-minded countries and proposed uh, and clearly stated mm. this uh, revisionist agenda. For the first time ever, officially in that document, China signed on to the Russian view that NATO should not have expanded that basically countries like Poland would not belong in NATO. Uh, that hmm. made that was an eye opener for a lot of people. And then when 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 Putin invaded, when the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine, there were still a few voices. And in that regard, um, I have criticized Josep Borrell because some hoped that maybe China could have a moderating, could play a moderating role. That has proven to be very unrealistic. China has been fully in bed with Russia. They have um, helped Russia to peddle their lies about the war, particularly in the global south. And they have uh, also done that activity with social media in our countries. Inside China, the glee over the Russian uh, aggression is um, very strong. 
it uh, helps distracting Biden from East Asia and it weakens the Europeans. Isn't that great? So that's the, the prevailings. There are smarter voices. There are academics who think it's recognized not a good idea to, to support, to go full in with, with Putin. There's one, one uh, step that China has avoided taking, which is supporting, lending him material support because Biden as well as the Europeans have been very outspoken mm. that that would be met with uh, uh, sanctions. So they, they're in bed with Putin. They don't want to pay the price for him. But strategically, uh, they have shown their colors. And that has corroborated the anal analysis that we had developed before. China is not even a reliable partner where you would expect them to obviously be willing to cooperate. When they reacted to the Taiwan visit, visit of Nancy Pelosi, they announced that they would cease for the time being cooperating with the United States on climate change. It's the first case that we know that a country tries to use climate change policy as a tool for political coercion. And that's why when people say China is an indispensable partner for climate change, I say, well, they're indispensable, all right, but are they really a partner? Even there, they play games that have convinced people that when you look at the European definition of our multifaceted China relationship, partnering, competing, having a systemic rivalry in Brussels, most actors would today say we're deep in rivalry territory. Let's um, translate some of this to the, the Indo-Pacific context, to the Australian experience. And I think it's, um, it's no secret to you, Reinhardt, or anyone really, that Australia's been through uh, a very confronting time in its relationship with China Indeed. in recent years, that I think that's been globally significant. And we're now at a time where our, our leaders, certainly our, our military leaders, but I think even our political leaders recognise that we are in the not only the most uh, uncertain, but frankly, the most dangerous strategic environment uh, that, uh, that, that many can remember. The uh, question for many of us now is, how does Australia's policy settings on China and on strategic rivalry in the Indo-Pacific uh, develop and evolve with a new government, with increasingly uh, risk-taking Chinese behaviour, whether with regard to Taiwan or in the South China Sea or even, even in Australia's own maritime environment. And what lessons can democracies learn from one another? Uh, and I think one question I would put to you is, uh, given Australia's experience with um, pushing back against foreign interference, with developing stronger national security settings, with developing, I guess, a more assertive diplomacy of our own, but now beginning to find ways to try to discipline that under a, under a new government. Are there benefits, particular benefits, that um, either of our countries could gain from deeper 
dialogue, cooperation, sharing of experience, um, coordination on um, on China policy. I would go back to that term, strategic solidarity between democracies. Mm. I have regretted that when China tried to coerce Australia economically, there was not enough of a vocal reaction from Europe. I guess if the same happened anew today, it might be different because in the meantime, we have ourselves experienced mm. similar coercive policies in the case of Lithuania, Absolutely. where the Chinese have dared attacking the holy grail of the European project, which, which is the single market trying to impose secondary sanctions against German companies that source from Lithuania. Um, and I have, I can say, admired some elements of Australia's policy. For instance, the sunshine uh, policy to create more transparency. That's a need that we all have. This is our foreign interference and influence. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I have also felt that the use. Uh, you chose a very smart way in dealing with the uh, issue of Huawei's role in the rollout of the 5G technology. Uh, and we have tried to, to learn from that. So when, when some of our friends in, in Washington, in the NSC, would tell us what to do, we would say, you shut up. Um, we don't need your advice. We'll learn from Australia. Um, That's a really important point. I'm just going to interrupt you there because some of our critics will say Australia follows America on these issues and it's a really important point to remind us that Australia took its In that stand. regard, it's just not the facts. Yeah. Australia yeah. was the first that was confronted and America uh, went for a more confrontational approach and I feel to this day that the Australian approach was very smart and very adequate. Um, it was... Um, country agnostic, but it set clear yeah. uh, criteria. And that's what we tried to, to, to do also in Germany when we overcame the opposition of the chancellor. Uh, and that was um, also an important fact, by the way. Uh, it was a majority of the conservatives, the socialists, the liberals, and the greens that opposed the chancellor's way in that, in that context. So, yes, I think were confronted with very similar challenges. And the positive thing I would say uh, as regards the position of Australia is that as far as I can see, you're not at all isolated with that in your Asian neighborhood. I was at the Shangri-La Dialogue Forum and not just the Japanese, also uh, Sing uh, the Defense Minister of Singapore and many other speakers basically said in different words, we don't want to see the Ukrainian tragedy repeated in Asia. And everybody understood what that meant. And um, I believe that um, in Europe, we have to accept the fact that we cannot just concentrate on the European theater. There have been voices arguing, let Europe do Europe, let the Americans, let the Asians do Asia. I don't think that's adequate. 
partially to a, to some degree because Europe also has an Asian presence. France France does, mm. uh, but also because, as Kurt Campbell has argued, this is not different theaters. This is one theater. They're joined at the hip, and and we cannot deal with one of these authoritarian powers ignoring the other. Well, the China-Russia no-limits partnership basically yeah. does that for us. Yeah. Uh, and that's why why I think we, we have to develop policies where we learn from each other. And obviously, China's strategy does not focus exclusively on the bilateral relationship. Maybe that's even the smaller part. China's strategy includes how we deal with the global south and how we prevent them from becoming a resource for China's imperialist dreams. Uh, China's strategy includes industrial policy and how we prevent uh, growing dependencies vis-a-vis China. And uh, the most dangerous dependency would be a tech dependency. And at the moment, Europe is cooperating with the U.S. through the new Trade and Tech Council. We're trying to put up a similar format with the Indians. We have promised to do that also with India. There's increasing cooperation with uh, Japan. And I think there should also be much more cooperation between Europe and uh, Australia uh, in that regard, with regard to industrial policy, with regard to uh, rare earth, with regard to industrially important minerals, because all our energy transformation-related technologies depend on industrial raw materials that are mostly processed in China. When the Mountain Pass mine in California excavates rare earth, they have to ship it to China to have it processed. That's a situation where China could have a chokehold. And we saw more than 10 years ago in the conflict over the Senkakus that China is willing to weaponize such dependencies. So there are important parallels judging Putin's role and Xi's role, I would argue, as much as Ukraine is central for Putin's dream of Russia's global role, control of Taiwan is central for Xi Jinping's dream of the so-called rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. But when we look back over the last 10 years, we have to acknowledge that the war... I don't think it's an audacious statement. The war in Ukraine could have been prevented. It didn't have to happen. It happened because our response to Putin's rhetoric and to Putin's aggressive acts was not strong enough to discourage him. And I believe that our aim has to be not to theorize about what happens if... Hmm. She invades Taiwan, but to 
think about what we can do to um, deter uh, such a development. I don't believe that war over Taiwan is inevitable. I believe it can be avoided, but that means that China has to be told in very clear terms that the price that they would have to pay politically, economically, for such an adventurous uh, military trajectory would be extremely high. And look, before we conclude our conversation, I think that point about deterrence, I'm glad you you articulated, Reinhardt, that it's not just military. It is, it's economic as well. Yes. And that's where Europe, frankly, has a role Militarily, to play. we don't play a role. We send... Uh, one of our frigates uh, t- uh, to the Pacific uh, last year. Well, we, have, we, have, we have some German uh, aircraft at, uh, in exercise. I know, I know, I know your that point. Was, it's not, that it's, was not about security. No. That was political signaling. I know, I know. That meant to, to say we have an interest, and but, that was good. But militarily, we're not going to play a role. But the decisive economically, role is economic. we would. Yeah, and, and that's and I think the the weight of Europe economically is still often underestimated in in the Indo Pacific. So that's a really important. Point well, in many of the countries, we're the number one investor. So uh, as we wrap up, I just want to go a little bit back to the Australian uh, dimension for a moment, just to note that uh, you know I think it's pretty refreshing to hear a voice uh, from the progressive side of politics talk about. Uh, these issues in this way, particularly the uh, you know the, the imperial dimensions of, of of China's external policy, and the way in which we will need to build solidarity among democracies to try to uh, to cope with that. In Australian politics, of course, uh, our Greens Party and our independents with um, w- with very strong progressive credentials have had a quite a different political path over the years. I think we're in a situation in Australia now where, for example, we have uh, a a crossbench in our parliament of of Greens and independents uh, with, I think, positions on foreign and security policy that are probably not yet fully formed in terms of the strategic challenges the region faces. Um, I'm not asking you to um, to interfere too directly in Australian politics here, Reinhardt, but do you have any thoughts for the future of progressive politics in Australia when it comes to coming to terms with the, the hard strategic issues and the human rights issues uh, that concentrate your mind? Well, I'm not interfering directly, nor am I interfering indirectly. The mutual respect forbids that. Um, And I don't know the Greens' policy on China in detail, I must confess. But I did have a conversation in Sydney with uh, newly elected Senator Shoebridge, who is working on defense. And uh, I um, explained to him how we are organizing a network between foreign policy and defense policy actors between different European Green parties who also have different angles. For instance, uh, Finnish Greens very strongly supported Finland joining NATO, whereas our Swedish Greens opposed Sweden joining NATO. We're not completely uh, marching in lockstep, and that's never going to happen with Greens anyhow. But to have an exchange and to learn from each other and to to understand mutual perspectives, I think that is uh, extremely important. And I uh, hope that we can play a useful role contributing to the conversations between our nations, our 
civil societies and and uh, um, maybe we will learn from each other also look thank you very much for those those reflections uh Reinhard Budikofer thanks for joining us on the national security podcast and i look forward to seeing you in australia again my pleasure thank you for having me <laughs>